Man, it is so good to see you all here today. And let me be the 80th to say Happy New Year. (laughs) Ah, that's great. Now I got all of you saying, so now I'm up to 80 as well. Perfect. All right. We're coming in our study of Exodus to the story of Moses. We learned last week about what happened with Israel as the nation went from a family that had been brought in while everything was going well for Jacob's, Israel's family, and how as years went on, as the family grew into a nation, and the people of the lands that they were dwelling in, the Egyptians, began to see them not as a friend, but as a threat. They began to abuse them, oppress them, enslave them. And things got worse for them. And last week, when we read about how things were getting worse, we didn't even see the worst that Israel went through. And you look at this situation and you think, how is God going to save us? What is he going to do to make everything better than it was before? There is so much work to be done. What is God going to do? Who is God going to bring? Well, we're going to be reading a story about a very special man who for the first 40 years of his life thought himself to be a very special man right up until things kind of came crashing down through a lesson that he needed to learn before he could begin to lead. You kind of have to learn humility, you see, if you're going to be in a position where you are effectively being used by God. Humility is such an incredibly necessary ingredient, and and sometimes you have to learn it, because you will sometimes find, as I have learned, and I'm sure I will continue to learn, and as I'm sure many of you have learned this lesson time and again, sometimes you are going into a position, or a role, a calling, that Looking at it from the perspective of, I'm going to be doing this, you think everything is great. You think, oh, all of my experience, all of my education, all of my passion are perfectly aligning to this particular role. I'm going to be so great at this job. And then you actually get into it and things don't work out as well as you're hoping. I think about myself when I was in college. I got a degree in psychology, and then I met Tamara, and she uh, encouraged me to go to New Tribes Bible Institute, now Ethnos 360, and I got a degree as in biblical studies. We, we got married while I was working on that education, and then I thought to myself, what is it that I want to do? Because when I was working at my first degree, I was thinking, oh, well, maybe I want to be a psychologist or a counselor or maybe a pastor. And then in my second degree, I thought, well, maybe I'll be a, a counselor, not a psychologist, or, or a pastor, or maybe a missionary. And I thought, what is it that God is calling me to do? And I thought, oh, I know. There's this amazing school down in South Carolina that has this degree called pastoral counseling. I want to be a past counselor or a pastor. It's perfect work. 
Maybe this is what God is calling me to do. And so Tamara and I picked up our lives and we moved ourselves to South Carolina, 900 miles away from my family in Milwaukee and about 1,600 miles away from Tamara's family in Denver. And we had such high hopes and aspirations. We bought ourselves a house, actually, um, even though it was just for a degree because we might be working part-time, uh, taking school part-time. We both took full-time jobs and said, this is kind of where we're going to be until God finishes this degree. And then I show up, and within a couple of weeks, I am told because of federal regulations coming into churches, if you say you're a pastoral counselor, you have to have essentially 80% of the training of a formal psychologist, but very little of the freedom that a clinical psychologist would have because if someone comes in and says a clinical word like I feel depressed you need to be able to refer them on to someone else and the degree was absolutely nothing like I pictured it would be and as time went on eventually it got to a point where sometimes I would be coming home from my classes and Tamara I was broken wasn't I I was just, I, I did not love my classes. I didn't love what it was trying to teach me. It was, it was just not fitting, and I looked at it and said, this is not what I want to do. And I was forced into a position of humility, or perhaps it felt like humiliation, because here I was, it was my decision to move here. And at this point, we had a, a six-month-old son and no family support, and we, it was just a very hard place to be in. And so we had to move to, to Denver, where there was a better school with a better degree, but we had spent a couple months literally living in Tamara's parents' basement. Oh, imagine how great that was for my pride and how I thought of myself, going from living on my own, owning my own house, to living in my in-law's basement. Oh, it, was, it was difficult, it was terrible, and my whole self-image was shattered. Everything I thought was good and great about me, every strength I thought I have, amounted to nothing. And yet that's exactly where God wanted me to be and where he brings me to again and again in my own life. Where he needs to bring each and every one of us. Because oftentimes we will find that the biggest reason God cannot use you and me in his work we might try to do his work, but the reason we might find that we are being ineffective turns out to be because of pride. And two ways that this pride can show itself in our lives are what we're going to be dealing with over the next couple of weeks. The first of these is the pride of believing what I can do and declaring what I can do. It's the pride of arrogance, what we typically think of as pride. This is a pride of, I am self-reliant, I am self-directed, I am self-determined. I, I know what I can do, I know where I'm going, and ain't nobody going to stop me. This is the kind of pride that looks to God and God says, God, you had better be thankful on Thanksgiving Day for me, because where would you be? If I was not doing what I'm doing. We'll talk about that next week, but this week we're going to be looking at a different kind of pride, which can also be harmful. 
Because isn't, there isn't just the pride of saying, I decide what I can do. There's also the pride of saying, I decide what I cannot do. Actually, never mind. The first one's what we're going to be talking about. The second one is what we're not going to be talking about yet. I got myself all twisted and turned. That's what happens when you prepare multiple messages. When you have the pride of believing what you cannot do, this is one that seems counterintuitive to us because it looks sometimes like humility. But it is a false humility sometimes. There's the pride that's self-effacing, that, that says, I am worthless, I am helpless, I am useless, and I just can't. This is the pride that says, God, don't even ask, because I won't, because I can't. All right. And I'm not talking about being reasonable and being wise and and accepting your limits. I'm talking about pride of just saying, I don't think I can. So I'm never, ever going to try. That's what we're actually going to be talking about next week. This week, we're going to be talking about that first pride that develops. Because Israel is in a desperate situation at the time that that Moses comes along. Things have been looking bleaker and bleaker and and God had made a promise to Israel after 400 years, I'm going to bring you out. And when the whole nation is enslaved, they would be thinking, how could it be that we are going to be saved? And in fact, Pharaoh even exerts his authority to the point that when he thinks Israel has become too much of a problem, he enacts a genocide where he first tries to tell midwives as soon as any boys are born, commit an abortion. Kill the baby. And they refuse to by neglecting to do their work of actually showing up. They say, oh, these vigorous women just, they have babies so fast that I can't possibly get there in time. And then the baby's born and what can I do? And God blesses them for it, but the Pharaoh says that's not good enough. And he begins to tell all of the Egyptians, every time you see a newborn baby, throw it into the Nile. Genocide. It's it's a terrible thing. Every single baby boy. But there are some parents that have a baby and they feel the need to do something a little bit different. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, we, we read about a baby who has been saved preserved, kept hidden from the Egyptians until they begin to suspect and then placed into a basket and and placed near the in the reeds near where the princess of Egypt goes to to bathe in the morning. And we read in verse six of chapter two that when the princess saw the basket and opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying. And she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess realized. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older... His mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. 
Now, the little girl that was um, Moses' sister and coming and saying, oh, should I get the baby's mother? She was probably about five or six at this time. So it's really doubtful that the princess actually was tricked by this little girl. She probably knew exactly what was going on. And yet, with this genocide going on and all of these babies dying, this princess said, I can save at least one life, one Hebrew boy. And she did. She took compassion on this Hebrew baby and saved him. And not only saved him, paid the mom to be a mom. Wouldn't that be great, moms, if you got paid full time for being a mom? Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? And then when the time came and he was old enough, he was brought to the pharaohs, the royal Egyptian household, and raised and trained in that household. So what is the obvious conclusion after all of this? Here you have a Hebrew boy who has been seen as special by the parents, who has been saved from a genocide and raised as Egyptian royalty. And you here you have, on the other hand, a nation who is enslaved and oppressed, but who has the promise of God that sometime within that baby's lifetime, God is going to save him. God's going to save the nation and bring them out of Egypt again. What is the obvious conclusion to draw here? The obvious conclusion is that Moses is going to be the one to save them. He's the obvious choice. And the great thing is, God is going to use Moses. And he will even use the skills that he learned about ruling a nation but God's not going to use him for the reason he thinks. And there's a couple hard lessons that he has to learn. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we read, Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friends? Moses said to the one who started the fight. The man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? It's 40 years later. Moses is about 40 at this point. He has been raised by Egyptians. He is essentially Egyptian royalty. He is the obvious choice to save Israel. And so he begins at this point to try out, just test the waters of trying the position as savior. He starts taking on rules that a rule, uh, roles that a ruler over Israel would take. First, he takes the role as I am the defender against oppression. That's what a, a ruler of Israel would do. He would protect his people from being oppressed. And when he sees that an Egyptian is beating up an Israelite, he kills the Egyptian and says, Aha! I am the savior. I am the defender of Israel. And then the next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting and he says, aha, 
Not only is the ruler of Israel its protector, it is the arbiter, it is the judge, and I will be the arbiter of Israel. I will judge disputes within Israel and right all the wrongs and bring peace and unity within my people. I will protect it from threats from the outside, and I will bring unity to within. I will be the savior of Israel, says Moses, because I am, after all, the obvious choice. Am I not? And like a house of cards, it just all comes tumbling down. Because Moses, Moses had not actually even been made ruler, not by anyone. No one had made Moses a ruler. Pharaoh hadn't made him a ruler. God had not come to him and said, yet be a ruler over Israel. And Israel itself, the the leadership of Israel had not said anything about you are going to rule over us, you're going to save us, you're going to bring us out. None of that had happened. And he did not have a leg to stand on. At first, he probably thought himself immune to to uh, whatever may have come because he very intentionally killed that Egyptian. But now he realizes he has no leg to stand on. And we read in verse 15 of chapter 2, Sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. Rather than finding safety in his position in Egypt, he is guilty of treason. And rather than finding support with his own people in Israel, he finds he has no support, no defense from the very people he is trying to help, from the very people he is trying to save. And he flees into exile, gets married, and has a kid. You know what he names that kid? An alien there. Because he says, I've become an alien in a foreign land. Everything seemed like it was going well for Moses, didn't it? You read the end of chapter 1, you read the beginning of chapter 2, and you read about how Moses has been saved and preserved and trained. You think everything is going to go swimmingly for him. But life just doesn't work out that way, does it? Where is your security? Where is your confidence? Where is your hope? about what God is doing in your life and where God is taking you. Where is your confidence? Some people will place their confidence in the experience that they've had or their education. They might place it in their their personality or in their passion. They can say, oh, because I'm so smart, because I have this experience, because I've done this job, because this is my passion and my heart, then, then God has then it must be that God has me planned exactly for this role, and when I take this role, everything's going to go swimmingly. And we think that we can guess that with relative accuracy, we can guess what God has in store for us. This is something I think that is often an affliction of the younger more than the older, but none of us are immune. Moses was 40 when this happened to him. Not elderly, but he was no 32-year-old spring chicken. 
uh, either. You see, we get passionate to see God move, to see God work. We have a desire for him to to do things and to to be involved. And, And sometimes in our passion, we get impatient. Like Moses, we might look and say, I can't wait for God. It's got to happen right now. And because I'm the obvious choice, I'm just going to go through it. We might think about our home. We want everything fixed in our home right now, don't we? And that project that's been sitting undone for forever just hasn't been finished yet. We want to have that level of financial security in our lives so that we can breathe. We want our children to avoid every pain and every struggle and every failure that we did because we know how bad those failures and pains and struggles hurts. And we look at our children and we say, whatever happens, we just want best for them and we are going to make sure it doesn't happen no matter what. We're going to fight to make sure that happens to prevent them from ever doing anything that they shouldn't do. And, and, and we got this perfect idea in our heads of how things should be, of how our lives should be stuck in our minds, don't we? I know just how I want my life to be. I know just how things would be better. And we know what it should look like and we know just how to get there. And this might not be true of everyone here, but some of us, very much so at times, myself included, we fall prey to the pride of arrogance and say we know exactly what ought to be done and... If everyone just listened to me, things would go so much more smoothly. Tell me you haven't heard that line come out of your mouth once or twice in your life. Again, I'm very much preaching to myself here because I know that I fall prey to this tendency within my own heart, within my own mind, moment of perfect honesty. What we need in these moments is humility. What we need in these moments is to understand who it is that actually causes the growth, who causes the work that we do to be effective and not just a chasing after the wind. We should be chasing after humility. But sometimes when we don't, we can reach a point where it needs to be forced upon us much like it was for Moses. Isn't this an encouraging, uplifting message, you guys? Aren't you just feeling at this point like you're just so excited to go out there and do everything? Thanks for that thumbs up, Dan. I appreciate that. There are some things that I want to be absolutely clear that we should not be taking out of this message. 
We don't need to look at the life of Moses as he thinks he is everything and then finds out that he actually can't do anything. And we should not be looking at his life and say, the lesson for my life is that I should not even try. The lesson we should not take from Moses at this point in his life is that I should avoid leadership, that I should have no confidence in my ability, that I should just give up my hopes and dreams. That is not at all what we should be taking out of this. What Moses' story rather does teach us is that when we fall into the story that we construct for ourselves of getting a savior complex like Moses did, we need to remember that you and I are not the saviors we think we are. We don't actually have the control of our own lives and the lives of others that we think we do. And life is probably not going to turn out like we expected it would. After all, as they say, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Who is it that said that? Anyone remember? I don't know, some famous general. And you know what? This is a message of comfort. This is good news. Why do you think it's good news? Because if I were to stand up here and tell you that everything relies on your striving and your working and that God is depending on you and that you are the Savior, then what happens when you try and things don't work out the way you intended them to? You're crushed. You're broken because you thought everything depended on you and nothing is working out the way that you thought it was supposed to. And if you are the Savior, then that means you are a failure, a failed Savior. And what in the world is God going to do with you now? But when we are willing to learn the lesson of humility first... When we learn to stop relying on our own strength, to stop relying on our own experience, our own passion, our own knowledge, our own selves to sustain us, to to empower us, to keep us going and to bring success. When we stop relying on ourselves, we begin at that point, if we are chasing after God to say, where then do I find my strength? Where then do I find my confidence? Where then do I find my hope, if not in myself? This is a message of comfort because there is an answer to that question. And that question is in the very person of the God whose child you are. You see, it wasn't until after Moses tried and failed and learned his forced lesson of humility that we read in chapter 2, verse 23. Years passed. And the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose out to Moses. No, their cry rose up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered 
his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. Brothers and sisters, you don't need to rely on your own strength for the answers in your life in any area for your family, for your home, for your finances, for this church. We don't rely on our strength. It is not ourselves that we preach. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. God is the one who makes the promises. God is the one who remembers His promises. And God, not you, and not me, God is the one who is strong to fulfill His promises. He calls to you and to me. Sometimes He's going to use your strength. Oftentimes He's going to call you to use your weaknesses in your service to Him. But in all things, He wants to use people who are humble, who are moldable, and who are willing to give the glory to Him. This is the message of comfort. This is the message of hope. Because when we stop placing our expectation and our confidence and our pride in our own wisdom and strength and plans, God is free, finally free, to step in and do His work in and through us. It is the finished work of God in us that we depend on for everything. And so as we come here to the Lord's table today, this is so much more than just a thing we do. This is so much more than just saying, God, I'm going to try harder. God, I'm, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong. I know the things I've done right. And I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to try to do more good. I'm going to try not to sin. That is not what God wants us to be thinking when we come to this table. What He wants from you and from me is to say, Jesus, You did everything. Your work has been finished at the cross. It's been determined since before the foundations of the world. It has been finished at the cross. And when I think about myself, I don't need to think about what I need to do in order to be a better Christian. I need to learn to trust that it is Jesus Christ in me who has already changed me. And it is not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So as we come here and we take the elements of the bread and the cup, let's remember that. And if we confess anything today, let's focus on confessing where we have had the pride of arrogance, where we thought that we knew what was best in whatever area of mind God is bringing to your, uh, to your mind so that we can begin to depend on His strength to carry out His purposes in our lives. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you and we thank you and we are so thankful that we can have confidence in your promises, in your finished work, and in our hope that we can have in you. And Jesus says, we consider what you have in store for us this new year. Help us, please, not to trust in our own strength, in our own striving, but to place our full confidence, rather, in the promises that you have made for us and the plans that you have for us. We thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray.